Happy Sabbath, everyone. Good to be in the house of God with you. Good to see so many friendly faces. Diane and David, good to meet you again. Um, my friend Louis, my friend Andy, and the gentleman up there, I have seen you many times, but unfortunately I haven't gotten your name straight. So good to be in this house of worship with you. Very brief. The nature of the ministry that we're involved with pretty much is concentrating on the areas that the general conference and the church at large is having a very difficult time. And that's basically penetrating through the world of Islam, both abroad and in the United States. Since July of last year, we started a massive broadcasting campaign to pretty much all of Europe, all of the Middle East, Iran in concentration, Afghanistan, former Soviet republics, all the Emirates, and including Saudi Arabia. Now, when we started this, we had absolutely no idea who was going to broadcast these programs and these television programs, because our networks, the networks that are involved with the General Conference, the, the one that has pretty much close capability of, of broadcasting all this was the Hope Channel. However, the Hope Channel had to go through so many, I don't want to call them bureaucracies, but so many red tapes to be able to broadcast these foreign language programs produced in such a short amount of time. And so they could not take the load when we needed them to take the load. How many of you are convinced that the Lord can use non-Adventists for his kingdom? Bless your heart. But the person that the Lord chose to broadcast us was the least, least expected candidate. And that's how somehow we will also incorporate that in our sermon today. How many of you have a fond, I would say, a pleasant view of Pastor Pat Robertson. Good to be honest. How many of you do not have a favorable view of Pat Robertson? Come on, be honest. Guess what? Guess who is airing us? 20 hours, almost, well, between 15 to 20 hours of Adventist broadcast, Adventist programs in Farsi, in Armenian, to that region of the world, covering about 500 million through CBN, Christian Broadcasting Network, owned and run by Pat Robertson. And we have been given one of the highest ratings on CBN. Amen. And uh, that has humbled me to realize that when it comes to closing the work, the Lord is going to use the least expected candidates. And we Adventists, the last movement, remember I didn't say the last church, the last movement, because we are constantly, and if we haven't, let's, let's arouse ourselves, constantly be on the move. We have to be open to see and to hear all these anomalies that the Lord himself is involved with. And so I will you know, try to incorporate that during the sermon. That's what we do. And by God's grace, in such a short span of time, in one year, 
Both the Southern California Conference and our respective ministries that collaborate with us saw the need that five million Iranians living in America, in, in America right now as we speak, there are nine million Muslims in that neighborhood. Between four to five million of them are Iranian descent, Farsi speakers. And so the need is there and was notified and finally was caught on by, by the Southern California Conference. And by God's grace from February of this, this year, uh, the, uh, the Southern California Conference graciously appointed me the pastor of the first Iranian church in the world. And it meets in Canoga Park and Glendale. And by God's grace, we have our eyes set on 10 more cities in Southern California. God is on a move, and we can be, we can be huddled uh, comfortably in our churches. And yet the Lord does not want comfortable Seventh-day Adventists. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Good morning. The scripture reading this morning, Luke 19, verses 9 and 10. And Jesus said to them, Today salvation has come to this house, because he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. How many of you are familiar with uh, one-hit bands? How many of you are familiar with, with that idea, that concept? Some bands came across, you know, in the 80s and 90s, they get a one-hit, they make about, you know, gazillions of dollars, and then they disappear. We have a figure in the Bible that we want to talk about. One of those one-hit guys. We don't hear much of him later on. But he made such an impact, and he could still make such an impact in our lives, that I think it would be helpful to visit this, this man and to see what kind of a contribution and what can we benefit from his experience. But before I start, can we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you for this beautiful Sabbath day. And Father... Bless the words spoken. Bless the thoughts shared. May the words of this unworthy servant and may the presentation be acceptable to your sight. Bless everyone who is present in your house. And Father, I pray for this short time that our minds, our hearts, our spirits be protected by your Holy Spirit. May the distractions of life, the worries of the world out there, may they stand still outside the doors of this house. And may we benefit and enjoy ourselves in your mighty presence. This we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Going back to 2,000 years, days of Rome, the Roman Empire was ruling the whole world with an iron fist. And one way to subjugate, one way to intimidate the subjects that they were ruling over was to do two things. Take away their judiciary, their executive power. The next thing was to tax the daylight out of them. 
And so the techniques that the Roman Empire was using for its subjects was that they would use the people of the very subject to be the very tax collectors of those minority groups. So in other words, Arabs would have Arab tax collectors. Persians would have Persian tax collectors. Greeks, so forth. And Israel was not an exception. However, before you were chosen as a vessel for the empire to do this work, and believe me, it was a very, very profitable work. You made the money that you wanted to make. You set the standards. You set the levels. And they say, this is how much money I want to make this week. And you went ahead and you made that much money that week. But before you became the subject, before you became a vessel of taxation to these people, you had to do a few things. First of all, you had to announce your allegiance to the Roman gods by offering sacrifices in their temples. So in other words, to become a tax collector, you need to offer a sacrifice to a Roman god, and in specific, to the Caesar in Rome. Nowhere else but in Rome. Next, your family was under that covenant that you made with the Roman Empire. So the sacrifice that you offered was not only for yourself, but it was for your family. Once you offered that sacrifice, you became a Roman citizen. You became the instrument of the Roman Empire for the specific work of collecting tax from your own people. How many of us would have loved to do that? There is a great deal of money in it. And I'll, I'll give you some ideas of how much money was involved. With our standards today, for every $1,000, you can make $10,000 of commission. However, the empire was not going to give you the commission. You make your commission. How? I'll come to... Diane's house, and I say, your taxes are due for the year. $1,000 by such and such date. But your fee is actually $11,000. $1,000 for the boss, ten for me. Now, you go around it, you don't want to go around it. Let's put it that way. Not paying taxes to the Roman government was treason. Equivalent of a felony, but once that tax rolled over to the next year, you became a candidate for beheading. So everybody paid their taxes. And one of the least, one of the last reforms in the taxes was established by the census that we all have mentioned in the book of Luke by Caesar Augustus, which was coincidental because they established a new form of taxation triple tax for its citizens. How would you like to be triple taxed? We're almost there, but, but that's where it came from. Now, you're a tax collector. You make a great deal of money. You work for the empire, the greatest empire man has known. But you're hated by your own people. You make great money. You have influence. 
You have bodyguards. You have entourage taking care of you, but you're hated by your own people. Now, if you're an Israeli, not only you are hated, you are cursed. Once you offer a sacrifice, being a Jew, once you offer a sacrifice to the Romans, to the Roman God, you have lost what is known as the Chabad Chutzpah. You have lost the glory and you have lost the blessing forever. You make a lot of money, but you're hated by your own people. And so the story of our person of interest. How many know who I'm going to be talking about? Let's read a bit of this verse. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 19. We will read a little bit, we'll ponder, we'll do a little bit of analysis, and we move on, and let's conclude what is the message of Zacchaeus for us today, June 6, 2009. I'm reading from the New King James Version. From verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, right there, there is one issue with this statement. Jesus was ultimately on his way to what city? Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where the plan of salvation was going to get completed, right? Now, why in the world is he stopping by Jericho? If you look at the map, you can straight forward, you can work your way straight to Jerusalem without even going to Jericho. Why Jericho? The Lord has some unfinished business. He wants to visit someone. Was he surprised by who he was going to meet later on? Nah. He went to Jericho, I'm fully convinced, for one reason. To finish, to have an unfinished business with a cursed Jew. Verse 2. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was what? Now, being a tax collector, you got it made. Being a chief tax collector, you really got it made. In general, historians say that to be a chief tax collector, you need to oversee the tax collection of at least 200 publicans. In other words, you're the boss of 200 tax collectors. Now this guy has it made, and he happens to live in the city of Jericho. Very wealthy. Next verse. Verse 3. And he sought... To see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. Now, I don't know about your imagination, but mine is kind of crazy. I'm, a, I'm, I'm picturing him as a, you know, a little bit of a you know, beer belly, maybe receded hair, and he's got you know, some rings on his fingers to remind him about his stature, you know. I'm rich. But he's a rich little guy, right? And he hears of Jesus. Now, when you're a tax collector, 
When you got it made, when you're making ton of money, when you hear about the Messiah, two things go through your mind. Joy and agony. You know why joy? Well, obviously, every Jew was waiting. One day, the Mashiach will come and will set us free from these sadistic, from this inhumane, whatever animal Romans are, somehow we will be free. How? We don't know, but we'll be free. Incidentally, that hope still is somehow alive in the heart of an Israeli. Um, I, had, I had a dinner party one time with um, a Jewish physician on the table. And I couldn't hold myself because he had the yarmulke and it was a Jewish party. And so I found a way to ask him. I said, what is the greatest hope that an Israeli has today, a Jew has today? He said, to see Jerusalem free. I said, is that it? Yeah. I said, how is that going to be? Well, the Messiah is going to come. When, I said, will the Messiah come, do you think? You don't know. Where is he going to come from? We don't know. I said, let me ask you, I can't avoid this question. Do you really think he's going to come? I don't know. So I said, what kind of hope do you have? Well, it's a hope that our fathers have. And we have the same hope. What kind of hope is that? I don't know. Right? They were hoping for the Messiah to come. But when you are a tax collector and you're filthy rich, there's also the agony when you hear the word Messiah. And here's the problem. If the Messiah comes... And if he sets the nation free, then I'm out of a job because there's nobody to tax anymore. Now, they're waiting to chop my head off my own people. I'm small enough that they can trample on. All this is going through this mind of this tax collector. Being a wealthy person he could have easily acted like the centurion and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to send an entourage in front of me, before me, ask you if you're interested. I'll have lunch at my house. He would have asked Roman guards to protect him from this, you know, the crowd just to see Jesus. What does he do? Climbs a tree. Would you climb a tree? You're a rich person, you drive your luxury car, you have influence and affluence, and you can, you, know, you can do it all. But you decide, I want to climb a tree. What kind of a tree? Sycamore tree. Do you know what a sycamore tree stands for? What it symbolizes in, in Jewish uh, theology? Curse. A cursed man, short status, stature, because, and it's so interesting, the Talmud calls short people believe it or not, not heirs to the promise of Abraham. Don't ask me how they come up with that. You're short, you're cursed as a tax collector, and you're climbing on a cursed tree. How bad can this be, right? Why do you think he climbed the tree? To see Jesus? The Bible says to see Jesus. Can I go a little bit imaginative? I think in his heart... He wanted to be seen by Jesus. He had, some, he had heard some things about Christ. 
Some say he's the Messiah. Some say he's a magician. Some say he's going to set us free. Some say he's a Roman instrument. He's a snitch. Our leaders don't like him. As a matter of fact, they hate, they hate him. Crowded around him. Kids are jumping around him. They play with him. They take him to lunch. He dances and parties with you know, whoever we're not supposed to be. I want to see this man. If I'll climb a tree, a cursed tree, I'll climb a cursed tree. But I want to see him. Continue. Verse 4. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. The words here, man, they knocked me out. Come down, Zacchaeus. Make haste. For today I must stay at your house. How dare you, Jesus? This man is a leech. He's cursed. He's offered sacrifices to Rome. He is a different religion. He's not one of us anymore. How dare you go to his house? Wouldn't that be what we say? Don't look at the Pharisees like that. Look at the Pharisees like this. How dare you? This man is an instrument of of destruction. He puts people out of their homes to collect taxes. And you go to his house? Why do you think Jesus went to his house? Just to create more enemies? He had enough enemies, right? They hated him anyway. Plus, it's about a week or two before his crucifixion. Jerusalem, but he makes a detour. He takes the time to visit a person who you and I would never set foot at their house. You're a traitor. You have broken the Sabbath. You denounce the Adventist church. You don't pay your tithes anymore. Just imagine. You don't have a balcony. But let's imagine. Full crowd in church. And an individual walks in who has crossed over and he is not an Adventist anymore. You know he attends a church that you vehemently oppose, whatever church that is in your mind. Comes into the crowd, goes up in the balcony, sits by himself. Everybody sees him. (coughs) Move away, move away, let him sit there. And Jesus walks into the sanctuary. And he hears the music, and he hears the sermon, and he hears all the laughter and all that goes on. And he looks around, and he say, Steve. I mean, I'm just using it as an example. I want to come to your house today. How would you feel like? Would you like that? Oh, yeah. Praise the Lord, brother. I love that. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, we don't. He is not one of us anymore. He doesn't keep the commandments. Jesus said, I want to go to your house for lunch. 
Now, sometimes we don't know who we're inviting. Sometimes we want the friends, the ones that look like us, talk like us, smell like us, act like us. We'll invite those. But who would invite a former excommunicated Seventh-day Adventist, right? Jesus would. In fact, here's a little joke for you. Can I tell a joke in this church? Sometimes we invite people just to get them out of our hair. You know, fine, right. You know, he's a pastor, he's an elder. Yeah, just, just go through the formalities. Just invite him, you know, and get it over with. One day, little Jimmy, after church, runs to the pastor and says, Pastor, pastor, don't forget you're invited to lunch in our house. Don't forget that. Don't go home. We're having lunch at our house. And the pastor says, Great, Jimmy. I love food. Do you know what we're having for lunch? He said, yeah. Peas? Oh. Carrots? And buzzard. You eat what? Peas, carrots, and buzzard. Would you like to come, Pastor? Yeah, I guess so. So they go to lunch, and as they're walking by the door, and he looks at Jimmy and says, Jimmy, Jimmy, wait up, wait up, wait up. Are you sure you guys are having buzzard for lunch? He says, yeah, Pastor. The other day, Mom was reminding Dad, John, don't forget, buy some carrots and some bees because we're having that old buzzer for lunch. How would you have felt? They call you a buzzard. The Lord decides to lunch, to have lunch with the outcast, with the person who you least expect for the Lord to visit. We think the Lord is one of us. So he ought to talk like us. He ought to better act like us. If he isn't, well, let's just invite that buzzer just to get him over with. I don't know what goes on into the house. We are not told. And I praise the Lord that the Bible doesn't tell us the conversation that takes place in the house. But you know who is outside of the house murmuring? You know who's that? You know who's out there? Who's out there? Who's out there? Us. Us. Pharisee means, you want my analogy of Pharisee? Pharisee means a Christian who doesn't care. That's a Pharisee. If you cared, you wouldn't call that person a curse and an outcast. Whatever he has done, whatever he has committed, the Lord wants to have lunch with you. Whatever the person next to you on the pew, you know they have committed. Oh boy, you know the whole story. Right? The Lord wants to have lunch with that individual. Why do you think he wants to have lunch with them? To sit on the table and bang them over the head with the doctrines? 
bang him over the head. How could you do this, Zacchaeus? You're a child of Abraham. How could you go offer sacrifices to those Roman beasts? How can you milk your people with all this money? Do you think is that what he told them? I don't know. But we know one thing. When that lunch was over, Zacchaeus was a new man. When that lunch was over, Zacchaeus comes out and says, I don't care about wealth. I don't care about riches. I want you. I want to be with you. I don't care what I have to give up. What did I say? I don't have to do what? Give? Give? No, no. Give up. What is it that we have to give up, do you think? We want Jesus for dinner. We want him for lunch. We want him to be our guest. But we don't want to give up things. We want to hold on to him. Hold tight to what we've got. I don't know what happened to this wealthy man. But the only thing I know, calling him names, putting him down, showing him that we can pummel him, didn't do the trick. It was that lunch meeting with Jesus. Who is your guest today? Who would you like to be your guest today? Now, 2,000 years ago, we say, oh, what a sweet story. We tell it to our kids, and they look, and you know, I was Yehi when I heard Zacchaeus and all that stuff, climbing the tree. But you know what? Here's what I'll tell you. Zacchaeus' story has to do with the end of time. And here's how it works. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Five chapters later, he is in the grip and the clutches of all those who wanted him dead so bad. But before he submitted to that eternal sacrifice, he took the time to come and visit an individual that otherwise he would have been cursed for the rest of his life. And not only for his life, for eternity. Now, take that picture, now bring it to our time. We are the in crowd. Can I call ourselves the in crowd? How many of you are convinced that Jesus' return is overdue? Come on, be brave now. How many of, well, let me ask you a question. How many of you would love to see Jesus come back? Okay. Do you think, do you think that Jesus has some unfinished business? And I'll give you two examples today. It has been one year, it's not that long, short, one year that I've been exposed to the most fascinating biblical proportion conversion experiences in the world of Islam. Hundreds of examples, but I'll share with you two. One individual called from Iran, the most, I would say, fanatic part of Iran, the Shiite um, theological center. On the phone, he had seen one of our shows on satellite, and he called. And he said, Brother, 
Jesus is visiting us every day. But that's not what I said. I said, yeah, uh-huh, go on. And he went into details. He went into nitty-gritty details. They even know what his face looks like. When was the last time that he appeared in my church so that I can get a glimpse at his face? And yet he appears halfway across the world to a Shiite Muslim. I told this man, I said, I'm jealous of you. I said, we're producing the shows, but he appears to you. He said, every time we see him, his whole white clothes are all bloody. He walks into my house. He says, how else can I describe it to you, brother? He says, there's no ways that I can express. He walks into our house. That's how we have accepted Christ. I don't even have a Bible. I have the Quran. I don't have a Bible. I don't have anybody missionary visiting me. He appears to us. You want to hear another one? Northern part of Iran, by the Caspian Sea, is a city called Rasht, on the border of Soviet Union and Iran. One lady called. She said, I know the whole entire, as, as Charles Stanley says, listen. He says, I know, she says, the whole entire New Testament I know. I have been taught, and I don't have a Bible. So my coworker asked, well, how do you know? And we're scared to ask. How do you know the whole New Testament? He says, Esau gives me the Bible studies at night when I'm asleep. Esau means Jesus in Arabic. What? So we ask questions. She knows her Bible. I don't have a Bible, she says. We can't even, in fact, we cannot even smuggle Bibles, even if you pay top dollars, we cannot, because the regime is tightening and tightening and tightening, and yet the people are turning to Christ, turning to Christ, turning to Christ. Jesus has unfinished business with the world of Islam. The media is not going to tell you that. I praise God that we have a president that somehow is trying to balance, even though, you know, they're trying to do it in a secular, worldly way, but I don't know. But here you have a situation. I'll give you statistics. How many of you remember the Shah of Iran? Okay, good. By the time of the Shah of Iran, in the time of the height of prosperity, wealth, health, peace, power, and all that, there is a recorded 500 conversion from Islam to Christianity by the time of the Shah. Islamic revolution took place. Ayatollah Khomeini came top of the regime, and started this mayhem, the militant Islam that we know, Hezbollah, and all the stuff that you and I are familiar with, was, was authored and exported by Ayatollah Khomeini. Thirty years have gone by with the establishment of Islamic regime, militant Islam, fundamentalist Islam. Do you know how many Christian conversions are in Iran today? Five million. Christianity is growing the fastest of all Islamic countries in Iran. And guess what Satan will do? Will steer us up against that neo-Hitler, Ahmadinejad. Bomb Iran. Bomb them. Buy their nuclear facilities and all that stuff. And yet, my dear brothers and sisters, know one thing. Next time we want to join the ranks, remember there are 5 million believers in Iran today. 
10,000 underground churches, of which we have the pleasure of having two home churches established by now, by phone consultation. I don't know why in the world would we be surprised to see Jesus finishing unfinished business with the world of Islam. Because everything that there is to be done, we are doing, right? And yet 1.5 billion is still out there. Do you consider the work finished? Now, 9 million of them are in the United States. How many of you have Muslim friends, relatives, cousins, co-workers? You do? Okay. Next time, remember one thing. The Lord loves them as He loves you. And in fact, if it takes, He will appear to them in person. If it takes. Now the second case that I want to say that he's got some unfinished business. It's in the world of science. How many scientific minds here? Come on, come on, come on. Good, praise God. I know Lewis is. Here's a report I got yesterday from one of our co-workers in Northern California. Did you know NASA is proving the Bible to be correct? How many of you knew that? We always look at the scientific field as the enemy. They're here to brainwash our kids into, you know, the theory of from the goo to the zoo to you. And how can they be, how can they be interested in, how can God be interested in science? Here's how he is interested. Here's a report from yesterday. NASA has multiple contractors that produce products, design machines and equipments and all that stuff. One of them, which designs the, everything that has to do with the engine, injection, fuel, and all that for the shuttles, is, a, is an institution, a company called Curtis Institute in Maryland, state of Maryland. The president of that institute is Dr. Harold Hills. Hill, I'm sorry. Report came out yesterday, and I got this wind of it yesterday, and I would like to share it with you, that the Lord has some unfinished business with the scientific world. This institute is, has been assigned to reprogram all the existing NASA satellites and satellite systems so that they will be running for two periods of time. For the next hundred years and for the next thousand years programming. Now how many of you know we can program for the next thousand years? But in order to do this, they have to accumulate the data of at least 4,000 years previous. And believe me, they know how to do it. So what happened, they gathered all the data of the last 4,000 years incorporating all the satellite, all the imageries, all the circuitries, and all the orbits, and everything incorporated them. And they wanted a solid 100 to 1,000 year projection of the programs for the satellite. Why do they want to do this? To make sure that the satellites are working and responding to all the changes of the planetary movements, of the solar system, the heat, the, the, the speed that the, the, the moon moves, the speed that the earth rotates and wobbles every now and then. So the whole thing was programmed into the systems for these, for these satellites. As soon as the project is finished, the computers 
sent out red alert, malfunction, cannot be completed. For one month, they decide to do it again. They did it again. It does not spit out the orbitry and, the, and all the circuitry that they need for the satellites to stay in orbit for at least 100 years, forget 1,000 years. They cannot get the 100 years down. This institute has a worker who happens to be Christian. Here's the problem with the circuitry. They cannot account for one complete 24 hours. One day is missing from all the calculations that Curtis Institute is putting into these satellites. One day, one 24 hour is missing. They cannot link all that together because one day is missing. Whoever wants it, I'll email this article to you. This Christian worker gets this bang over the head. He says, I want to go get my Bible. He goes, gets the Bible, and he brings it to a conference. He says, I want to read for you from the book of Joshua, chapter 12. And everybody's like, this is not a Bible school or class. Come on, this is NASA, man. Is this stuff, blah, 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 you're all familiar with, right? He insists, I want to read a passage for you. And he reads the account that Joshua asked the Lord to stop the sun. How many of you remember that story? Okay, I want to ask an honest question. How many of you believe that story? He presents this during a board meeting. He says, read. Joshua stopped the sun. And the word says approximately, takarib, I think, uh, meaning almost one day. They take it, they take all the facts simulated to all the analysis, they come up with 23 hours and 20 minutes. This is great, but it's still not working because we are short 40 minutes. Goes home, digs his Bible, his what? And he comes back with 2 Kings. Here's a passage. It says, Hezekiah was given a sign by the Lord. I will turn the sun back 10 degrees. Do you know how many minutes that is? 40 minutes, 23.20, you got a whole day, and the setup is working for the next 100 years. Somebody say amen. amen. The Lord has unfinished business. Let's not forget that. Let's be part of finishing the Lord's work. Let's not forsake and overlook all those precious souls out there. Could be halfway across the world, could be down your street, could be your neighbor, or could be that coworker that makes your life miserable. <laughs> you know how you can gauge the temperature of your Christian life? By how you treat with those who make your life miserable. It's easy to be Christian in church, church. Once we're out there, once we're out there, Martin Luther says, you are Christ to your neighbor. Do they ask you to be your guest? 
Don't wait. Ask them to be your guests. God bless you. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you. And we want to thank you, Father, for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will be doing. And Father, as we leave this house of worship, do not ever let us leave your presence. And Father, accept our invitation. Be the guest of our house. Be the guest of honor, not for today, not for tomorrow, but for ceaseless ages of eternity. We want to thank you and praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.